Scripture for today is from 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 15. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. My name is Chad Lewis. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn and been reflecting on David's life a lot, been reflecting on desire and even how desire fuels so much of our lives. And one author put it like this. He said, as created beings, we're limited in every way, save one, and it's desire. And though that's hard to quantify if, if we have unlimited desire, we, we do realize desire is huge and it fuels so much. And I've been reflecting on it in my life. I uh, was a former hippie, recovering hippie, Played a lot of music uh, from 2001 to 2014. A lot of people don't know this, but I had, I did seven albums, wrote a hundred plus songs. I had 200 cover songs that I'd play, Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, all sorts of stuff. And I could play for hours. And five of these albums were on homemade equipment. I did one with Eddie back in 2005. Uh, through Sojourn. And a couple years ago, I went to Nashville and was able to do it with world-class musicians um, like Eddie. He's world-class, but he wasn't there. But amen. amen, there you go. But what I noticed through all of these things is that desire drove me. One of the most interesting times in my life was in 2003. I just did my third homemade album and started touring south and southeast. And I kind of have a joke where I say, man, I, I traveled and played for dozens and dozens of people across the South and Southeast. And that's a true thing. But it was interesting that I could go and play at a university, a college, and, and 300 people would pack an auditorium and it would just feel so sweet sharing stories, sharing these songs. I could get in my car, drive 10 hours to the next place 
and there'd be 10 people that show up and I'm just playing. And it's like, okay, I think I'll never play another song again. I'm never gonna play in front of anybody. And what I, I realized even with those desires is a lot of the desires that drove me to do that just, just pushed me forward were good desires. I, I wanted people to be comforted. I wanted people who had heartache to know that they weren't alone. I wanted to see that they would have hope. But those weren't my only desires. Other desires I had were trying to prove that I was worth something, trying to prove that my life mattered and that if I could get enough people in the seat and I could do good enough or get enough sales, then I was okay. And I was trying to use it to fix brokenness that was inside. And I wanted to be the next Rich Mullins. And one of the people... um, talks about desire like this, one of the pastors I read. He says, and I wanna read this twice, we are overcharged and overbuilt for this earth. Infinite beings living in finite situations. We are a Grand Canyon without a bottom. We are fired by longing. Let's think about this one more time. We are overcharged and overbuilt for this earth. Infinite beings living in a finite situation. We are a grand canyon without a bottom. We are fired by longing. And we have these longings. And we have times in our lives where unfulfilled desires can lead us down very dark roads because it's like, man, this life isn't working out like it was supposed to. But conversely, we can have desires fulfilled in our lives and it can lead us down a very dark road. Because what we find, whether it's on our bed at night, laying down, just thinking, it's not enough. It's not enough. And we see this even in pastors throughout uh, this country. It's like, man, I have 500 in attendance, but if I can get to 750, I'll be all right. If I can get to 1,000, if I can get that first book published or that 10th book, it it never ends. And the desires are, are mixed. And what we see is in this longing that we have, We go to so many different directions to try to fulfill that longing. And what I want us to think about as we look at the story that Hannah just read about, it can become very familiar to us. And we can say, man, I know that story. David did this, he messed up, blah, 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 blah. And we can cease to draw the proper conclusions for it with our lives, with our hearts and say, God, what are you inviting me to as a result of looking at David's life? Because it's an important story in scripture. As I think about God creating, he created everything, you know this, Genesis 1 and 2, he created everything and it's good. And then sin comes in with the fall, Genesis 3, and it doesn't create anything new. Sin can't create, but what it does is it takes what God has created, which is good, and corrupts it. And so when we think about the desires that we have, one day our desires will be pure in the new heavens and new earth. But for now, they are corrupted in many ways. Sin comes in and corrupts. And what we do with those desires is very, very important. And as we look at David's life today, I want us to remember who David is. Greatest accolade in scripture, I believe, for a man of God is is this. David is a man who's after God's own heart. And we see it, don't we? We see it throughout his life. We see it in the Psalms when he's longing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste him. My heart longs for you like a dry and weary land longs for water as the deer pants for water. So my soul longs for you. He's, he's got this passion and he follows God mightily, doesn't he? Great faith in this guy. David isn't a, a sociopath or a raging narcissist like other kings and rulers that we see throughout history, even Israel's history. He's a man who seeks after God. He's chosen by God. He's loved by God. 
but he takes this terrible turn in his life. And I wanna examine why today. And as I've prayed and talked with pastors, uh, the outline is, is pretty sobering. It's, it's one of these, man, I'm just, I really, I'm, I'm worn out. Um, even after the first sermon, just because the heaviness of this. But there's grace, there's good news in the midst of this, but we're gonna chug along. If I fall down, someone come pick me up and I'll, I'll keep on preaching. Can y'all do that for me? But here's the first point, destructiveness of sin. What sin does, it destroys. And then we'll move to the seductive nature of sin. How and why does sin get a hold of our lives? And why do we follow the progression down instead of stopping at some point, but we keep going? And then finally, we'll look at the redemptive movement of grace. How does God feel towards our sin? What's his heart and what's his invitation? So let's start with the first point. We're just gonna look through and we're looking at the destructiveness first because I wanna look at the consequences and then talk about the why. So let's look at the destructive power of sin. Remember all the things David's done. He's been a faithful son and shepherd. He's been anointed by Samuel. He goes, fights Goliath. We saw in the weeks previous, his compassion towards Saul and his forgiveness. We saw how he made a mistake with the ark, but then he ends up going back and studying the scriptures probably and, and talking with pastors and prophets and then going back and bringing the ark back and he dances and he, he has a heart to, to just point to God and say, God is it, he is it. He's the supreme, supreme being and, and we are called to love him and he fills us. Second Samuel 7, if you went back, it's one of the most important passages in the Old Testament because prophet Nathan is sent by God and this promise is given to David. And he said, God says, I will make an everlasting kingdom come from your line. There will be a king who will reign forever. And though David couldn't fully understand, you can look at David's response and see that he understands something amazing is going on. And it's a, a prophecy that Jesus would come one day. And he's got all these promises, all these things, all these things are going in. And up to this point, he's leading well. He's leading a flourishing life. He's showing kindness to so many people. And then this story unfolds. In the spring, when kings go off to war, that's how it starts. And the narrator seems to imply he should have probably been off fighting, but instead he stays home. And as he's staying home, I'm just imagining, it's not in the text, but I'm just imagining even though the details are more external, what's the internal world of David? Is he discontent? Probably, there's probably a lot of discontentment brewing. Probably he's gotten everything that he could ever imagine plus more and it's not filling him. There's still relational conflicts. There's still kingdoms to be conquered and he's out walking discontent on his roof. And then he spots a woman bathing on her roof and boom. And this is my one plan joke for the sermon, just to lighten it here at this beginning part. So enjoy this, because if you don't, there won't be many more coming. But I was talking to my wife last night, and I, many of you know me as a scholar, as an etymologist, and there's not much about Bathsheba. A lot of people imply like, hey, she's bathing on the roof, she's trying to tempt David, that she's a bad girl. And it's like, well... Maybe, it's not in the text. She might've been up there waiting for aliens to come get her. We don't know, it's not in the text. Because the text isn't about her wrongdoing, it's about David and what he does as the power, supreme power in, in Israel. But I, I couldn't find much honor, so I just went to the root of her name and it's Bath 
Sheba. And if you look at the second syllable, it's she. And then it's so shocking what she's doing. It's ba bath. Sheba baths on the roof. It's not good, I know. It's been a heavy week looking at this text. So we'll move on from, from that point. But Bathsheba, the story's not about wrongdoing for her. It's about a man in authority who takes advantage of his authority. So he sends someone to inquire, and they come back. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that should have, like, okay, she's somebody's daughter. She's somebody's wife. But he doesn't stop there. He sends others to go get her. He has relations with her. It's done now. He sends her back home. But then sometime later, whether it's four weeks, six weeks, we don't know the timeline, but she realizes she's pregnant and this is a problem because her husband's been off at war and he's still off at war. And so she sends word to David, I'm pregnant. David knows what that means. So at this point, he concocts a plan so you can see still just figuring out stuff in his own strength. He's not calling on the Lord. He's, not, he's just moving forward. He's like, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get Joab to send me Uriah. I'm gonna buddy up with him. And I'll buddy up with him and I'll send him home. He'll have relations with his wife and then he'll just think the baby's born early or something like that would be my assumption. But Uriah comes and David underestimates the fidelity and the, just the faithfulness of Uriah because he said, I, I won't go back home and enjoy the comforts of home while my brothers and others are fighting day in, risking their lives. I, I can't do that. So David said, okay. And he tries to come up with another plan. I'll get Uriah drunk. I'll send a gift. I'll do all this stuff. Uriah won't go home though. And this is where, if you look at the consequences up to this point, they're, they're real and they're big. And a lot of people have been hurt. And it's a lot of the internal worlds that aren't spoken of specifically in the passage here. But just imagining what this has done to Bathsheba's soul, what this had done to the messengers that David's sending out and they see him secretly bringing in this woman who's another man's wife, thinking about all of these different things that there's, there's hurt that's been taking place here. There's been wrongs. But this is where the story takes a very dark and insidious turn. Because David, whether he feels trapped, whether he's just like, I, I don't know what to do, he's freaking out, we don't know. But he writes a letter to the commander, Joab, puts a royal seal on it and hands it to Uriah. And Uriah is responsible for taking his own death sentence back to Joab and says, put Uriah on the front lines and when the fighting's the fiercest, pull back and let him be killed. And even in just my imagination, if a leader did this today in, in the United States, he'd be sentenced to life in prison, right? Or death row. This is murder. This is murder. And so if we think about the consequences and the destruction of sin and how it just gets darker and darker, there are big things that take place and small things, some things that are in the text and some things that I just imagined, but let's just imagine a few things. Because in this story, it seems like Uriah is not the only soldier to be killed because of this plot of David. 2 Samuel eleven twenty three 23 and 24, it says, as this messenger reports back to David what happens, he says, the men overpowered us and came against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. And they knew in battle that you don't get too close to the city because there's a lot that goes on. So they've learned that, but they continue to press forward. Archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. 
and some of the king's men died. Some of the king's men died. Wherever your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So it seems to me that this plot just to kill Uriah caused other men to be killed. I think about more than just those external things, this internal stuff that's going on. Just think about Joab receiving that letter and just like, hey, I'm imagining him and David, they've been kind towards their men. They wanna take care of their men and here they are putting them in harm's way. So Uriah will be killed. Thinking about David's reputation in Joab's eyes just being shot. Thinking about the men who said, man, we, we usually don't attack like this. Why, why are we doing? And maybe the confidence is lost. And the judgment upon David and his family in 2 Samuel 12 that we'll mention now, and we'll talk a little bit about later, but God says, now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. And we think about the progression and even just how, how sin, there, there's obviously a, a judgment and a movement of the Lord here, but there's also just thinking about how humanity works that the children are seeing this with their, their father and who knows what that's doing to their souls, how their children are deeply affected and thus the mother of the children, the servants of the household. I, I just think about still the soul of Bathsheba. She loses the child that she was pregnant with. And then I think about little Solomon as a kid walking around and maybe hearing snickers from his brothers. I don't know, that's not in the text, but just imagining, imagining him talking to his mom, like, mom, how did you meet David? And her having to say, well, David called me here and um, this is what happened. And even think about how it affects Solomon. It talks about in 1 Kings, how he had 700 wives of royal blood and 300 concubines. And they indeed, they pulled his heart away from the Lord. Just thinking about the cycle here that continues to go, that there's a lot of destruction. I, I also think about the soldiers, once the conspiracy came out, what that did to their souls. I think about the wicked people in Israel who are using a lot of excuses to sin and do whatever they want to hurt people. They're like, well, this is King David, he does this. He's, he said he followed God, I'm gonna do this and do even more. And maybe those who were righteous and trying to follow God, they were like, man, if David's doing this, maybe they stumbled some. I don't know, that's not in the text, but I'm just imagining. There's, there's a lot of explicitness in this text about what does happen. And you can read chapters 13 on and see how Absalom goes wayward and all the stress and, and the brokenness of David in the years to follow because of all this, because his heart's broken. And so I think about it, the hiddenness of sin hurts us. Our, our souls are not meant to live in duplicity. We aren't able as created beings, creating the image of God to live a, a disintegrating life. We can keep it up for a while and even hidden sin. You may not say, well, I've, I've never murdered. That's a pretty good standard, I guess. But maybe there's other standards too. And thinking about, man, is, is my hidden sin that no one knows about, is it affecting others? Because it does damage to our souls. And then the way we're in relationship with other people 
it is affected and we affect others. And now it leads me to the big question that leads us to point number two. David knew all this stuff, right? David is one who seeks after God with all his heart. David is one who's been chosen by God and seen God do miraculous things. David is one who knows the Pentateuch. He knows the stories of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. He knows Joshua. He knows Judges, how people did what's right in their own eyes and how they spiral. He knows King Saul firsthand, the destruction that was in his life as a result of not following God. He knew all this stuff. So how did he, of all people, and I think it's an important point here, guys, the realization that we, any one of us, any one of us is susceptible to falling greatly. We all fall. We fall every day in some sense but we are all susceptible to falling greatly, everyone. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's saying, God gave us all this stuff about the Israelites wandering and all this stuff so that we could learn from them. And if you think you can't fall, be careful, take heed, lest you do fall. Because temptation's the same for everybody and God gives a way to endure it. But if you're not careful, you will fall. And sin is seductive. And so let's think about the seductive nature of sin. We're all susceptible. There's no one exempt. Sin is seductive because it takes just your state and it doesn't say, hey, let's end at this place where people are really, really hurt and damaged and you've hurt your reputation, you've hurt this. It doesn't say, hey, let's go there. It says, no, let's go here. Let's go one step. Let's just go right here, one step at a time. And in the men's Bible study last year, we talked uh, through First and Second Samuel a good bit. And we, we talked about how the progression of sin, it's, it's so subtle. It's step A to step B. It's from step B to step C, and it's one step at a time. And what I'd like to do is look at the progression of David's life and wonder about our lives. Just ponder with holy curiosity, not to live in shame and condemnation, but just say, hey, God's heart, he wants what's best for us. He loves us. He wants to protect us. And he invites us to look at this stuff. Because if you're in ministry or you're a pastor, or maybe you've fallen big time in the past or or small in small ways, and you're like, I know I'll not, not do that again. Or maybe because you have people looking up to you, it's like, I won't do that. Whatever it may be, we all are susceptible. And James fits it like this, and he uses desire Remember we talked about in the intro, James writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And that desire that we have, I even reflect on this week, a desire to be safe and secure. Is that a good desire? Oh, yes. That's a good desire. Is it a good desire to want to be known and to be loved? Yes, absolutely. Can those things go sideways? Absolutely. If I'm having murderous thoughts about my boss, I might be able to trace those back to wanting to be just safe and secure. Did they go sideways along the way? Oh yeah, they did. They did. 
there's a better way in God's kingdom than a conspiracy against our, our boss, right? Illicit relationships, wanting to be known and loved, good thing. But as the country artist says, looking for love in all the wrong places. I didn't have that plan, but I'll give you that in reflection with the cover songs I used to do. So let's look at the progression. A to B, B to C, C to D, and so forth in David's life. Step A, in the spring when kings go off to war, he stays home. In and of itself, small thing, right? But he finds himself discontent. He's walking around the roof and boom, first glance, Bathsheba, beautiful woman. His heart is hooked. And if you would have stopped David at that time and said, hey, David, what are you doing? He said, man, I'm, I'm drawn to this beautiful woman. What do you think this is gonna do, David? Well, I think it will cause me to commit adultery and murder her husband and destroy my family and dot, dot, dot. He didn't think that at the time, do you think? None of us do. It's just a thought. It's just a glance. And in many ways, the first glance is free and then get hooked. In the evening, David couldn't sleep. He sees this. He spots a beautiful woman bathing, and, and he knows this passage from Exodus. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And he knows this. He knows this command. And it's a beautiful command. Hey, I, I want you to live in harmony, my people. I want you to be content with what you have rather than grasping for what others have. But he doesn't stop there. So he sends people to find out who this is, and he gets the word back. This is the daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that, in many ways, you think that would shock him back. Man, even just thinking, like, this is someone's daughter. This isn't just an object out there that I can fulfill my needs with. This is someone's wife, too. And he knows the command. You shall not commit adultery. But he calls and gets her anyway. And they have relations. And then time passes, four weeks, six, whatever it is. And she sends word back, I'm pregnant. David uses his own wisdom, does the plan. And like we've already said, Uriah is killed. And he knows the command, you shall not murder. And things have gone from A to Z over this period of time. And it's a big deal, a big deal. And the application I have, even at this point, before we look at the redemptive movements of grace, is in some time in life, some of us every day, there's, there's progressions from A to B to C to D, and Z's waiting down the road. And the invitation is, during the stories I was reading it, just heavy in my heart, I just longed, I longed for David just to say, Nathan, come on, buddy. Long for the prophet, for the pastor to come and say, hey, man, this is what's going on in my soul. I am burning with lust. I'm seeking after all these things. And I know they won't give me satisfaction. I'm going to hurt people. And I long for interruption. And I long for interruption in our church when people are walking down that path. But we can foster within this church a group that don't even allow that. Because I know a lot of times, 
I've shared experiences being a depression sufferer coming and even just sharing that, which isn't a sin. And sharing like, hey man, I'm depressed. And be like, ooh, uh, how's your faith doing? It's like, or I, I've really heard the advice one time, Chad, you don't have to be sad because people like you. I'm like, oh, put that on a Hallmark greeting card right there. <laughs> but think about it. Has someone come to you before and said, hey, I'm having murderous thoughts. I'm having lust. I'm thinking crazy. And we will all get crazy sometimes. How, how do you receive them? The posture is like, oh, ah, uh, well, I'll be praying for you. Uh, maybe go read 2 Timothy. See you later. Or do we have the grace to be able to sit with people and say, man, let's pray. Praise God. You're not at Z right now. You're just at H. It's a big deal, and we want to deal with it, and we want to get help, but let's, let's celebrate the small things too, right? And may we be that people growing in grace, Because the things that keep us away, they keep us hiding in these secret sins that the progression keeps on taking place. It's it's shame. It's saying like, if people find out about this, they're going to think this about me and already think this about me. They're going to know I'm a loser. They're going to know I have these crazy thoughts or it's guilt. Like maybe if I just had enough willpower, if I just re-ante up one more time, I can do this on my own. It's a fear of being found out. Like if people knew this about me, then they're going to be whispering behind my backs. And I just want to say, it's possible. But you know what? We love you. We want you to come out of hiding. God is inviting you out of hiding. And there's very little healing that, take, that can take place if you hide. And it's risky. Well, what's God's heart? God seems absent from the pages of 2 Samuel 11, but we know that God's near. And at the very end, the very last half of the last verse, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And if this were the end of the story, if we just went straight to communion right now, we'd probably play some Sarah McLaughlin tunes and just be depressed together. But it's not the end. It's not the end of the story. So let's look at the redemptive movement of grace because God is always present and his heart is so huge. His his truth applies to us at every moment of every day. And this same David who earlier had written Psalm 139 knew that all his days were written in God's book. He knew before a word was on his tongue that God knew it full well. He knew that he was fearfully and wonderfully made but he had stopped believing that somewhere along the line. He'd stopped experiencing it and he took a bad path, but he's about to experience it again. And I think one of the things we don't think about with sin, we, we have these views, bad views of God, that God's just sitting up there with his arms crossed and just like, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. Can't believe you're thinking that. Can't believe this. But if we can think of Luke 15 and the picture of the prodigal son and the father, if, you, if you're having trouble embracing the forgiveness of God, just meditate on the prodigal son's father this week. Luke 15, over and over again. The God's posture saying, my child, I don't want you to take that path because I know it'll hurt your heart. And if you have taken that path, let it be a reminder that God's still saying, it wouldn't work, but come home, come home. 
I'll throw you a party. I got a ring. We'll have a meal together. Come home. The movement of grace starts, and we have these C's here. Kevin and I just kind of brainstorm these C's, and you won't find these in 2 Samuel anywhere, but they're just thinking about repentance, and I want to state at the beginning that your repentance, if you follow these C's, it's, it's not like that's the, the method. I'm not going to write a book, The Six C's to Perfect Repentance. It's not like that. It's just these are descriptions of what goes on in our hearts, and um, Augustine even said our repentance needs repentance. We're not going to have like the perfect repentance, and we're not earning anything in it. We just seeking to sit with the weight of our sin, but also take a movement to see the heart of God because we want it to do a movement in our lives so that we can come out loving God and loving others more. And there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow that, that James talks about. Worldly sorrow is just like, oh, I got caught. I just want to make sure everything's okay and then keep going. But godly sorrow sits with it. It's like, man, this is a big deal. But it also in faith, embraces the love that God has. So this is the, the movement of grace, the contours of grace. First thing is confrontation. It starts with ascending. If you look at chapter 11, they're sending all over the place. David's sending, sending, go get her. He's sending letters, it, all this stuff. He, he seems to be the sender, right? He's, he's in control, but he's, he's not. And at the right time, God sends Pastor Nathan, this prophet, same one who gave him the amazing prophecy of the eternal line from 2 Samuel 7 is the same one who confronts him. And we don't have too much time, but I love the subversiveness of, of this story and how he doesn't go in and just bust David's chops. He tells a story. And this is what it is, 2 Samuel 12. Nathan comes and the thought is, hey, hey David, king, judge this. There are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. If you've had a pet 15 years, you, you could, it's like, yeah, it's like a family member. Well, listen to the story. Now, a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David, King David, he had a huge heart for the little guy because that's what he was at one time. He is angry. He's, He's just out of his mind. There's going to be retribution. Judgment is passed. He's like, let's go get this guy. We're going to take care of this. And this is where the story turns because the gracious confrontation, Nathan turns and says, David, you are the man. You are the man. And at this point, falls a speech from the Lord. I've given you so much, David. I gave you so much. And if, if it wasn't enough, I would have given you more. But you did this. And at this point, this is the most important point to me in the entire story. And I think it's the most significant act in David's life. I think it took greater courage for this movement than fighting Goliath, than all the wars, than all the things. Because at this moment, as the sovereign king of Israel, who had power to do whatever he wants to, what's he do? He embraces it. 
He embraces it. He's broken. He doesn't shift blame. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't hide. He's a broken man. And that took courage. That also took a view of God, of God, like you're compassionate and loving and I have blown it. And remember God's heart, because David at this moment, in this confrontation, he has a couple paths he can take. One is taking the path of using his power to silence Nathan, to rewrite history. He could have done all those things. But I think it's amazing, as I thought about this week, he writes a song for all of Israel to sing. We sang it this morning at our confession, Psalm 51. 3,000 years later, people are still singing this song because of the movement of David to embrace his guilt. I, I just blown away also, and we'll look a little bit at the Psalm here to close, but thinking about, Lord, forgive me. I wanna teach transgressors your ways. I want them to learn from my mistakes so that they won't walk this path. Lord, please. So there's, there's confrontation, then there's conviction. In Psalm 51, three, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David embraces the fact that this was sin, it was wrong. And there's a movement from conviction to contrition. There's this feeling of brokenness. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will never despise. And this conviction, this contrition leads to this confession where he's not hiding any longer. He comes out and he says, Lord, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. It's, I, I will let others know. It's just not that I'll confess to you. I'm gonna let others know. And before we look at compassion, I, I wanna think about a couple of things because this is where sometimes our movement to embrace God's love and his plan for our lives gets short-circuited because a lot of people will have this, like I said, the worldly sorrow and they'll be confronted and then they move straight to confession. And it's like, okay, I confess, it's all done. And there's no acknowledgement for that people have been hurt. And they can be stuck there. But I think for many of us too, we can get stuck in the contrition part. And the problem with it is that we can hold ourselves to a higher standard than God holds us to. We can say, man, I've done this. I'm never gonna forgive myself. I can't, I can't. God can, he does. That doesn't make everything go away, but if we get stuck in contrition and we can't see his heart and move on and say, there's life to live beyond this. This is not the end of my story. You got a lot of story left by God's grace. Well, we move to confession and then we see compassion. And I kind of wanted, when we were putting this up on the whiteboard this week, I wanted to put compassion before every step. It's like compassion, compassion, compassion. Because it really does, it holds all of this. God says, you're not gonna die, David. And David, David writes this in the first verse of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your love that's unfailing. Have compassion on me. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Make me whiter than snow. He knew God's love. And in this moment, he embraces it. 
And lastly, I put here consequences. It, it remains, if I hurt you, I own that. And seek to make amends, just even like the steps of AA, the careful acknowledgement of like, man, I, this is me, I own it. And where I've hurt others, where it won't hurt them to make amends, I'm gonna lean into that. It's a very biblical concept. I'm gonna, I'm gonna push forward and seek to remember consequences remain. But God takes us from the ashes and makes something beautiful. God takes the things that we have done and he won't make those things good if they're broken and they're sinful, but he makes good things out of those. That's what Romans 8, 28 and 29 is. It doesn't say all things are good. It says God uses for those who love him, all things to work together for good. For those who love the Lord, been called according to his purpose. He makes us more like Jesus. And how beautiful is it when someone has owned their sin and they say, hey, I'm broken. I'm broken. I failed. But it is many times that those broken saints share more the aroma of Christ than anyone I've ever met. Because they know how they've fallen, but they've also tasted the goodness and the love of God. May we be a people who can proclaim the goodness of God, hold that intention with, there are many consequences to sin. And I believe this was courageous. He owns it. He writes this song and he knows God and God's provision. And this can lead us to repentance and this movement of repentance, turning away from this and turning to this. And that is the prodigal son who turns away from that life, comes back to the father. And remembering once again, his repentance isn't perfect. He has the speech, remember? The speech he has in the story. He's like, I'll just tell my father, I know I'm not your son anymore. I'll just be your servant because at least I'll get fed. And the love of the father overwhelms his incomplete repentance. And he's just like, boom, no, stop your repent. You've come home. You've turned towards me. Let's go be a family. David saw in part, we see more fully now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see that he has made a way for us and that we are whiter than snow. It's a status that we have as Christians. And I have one other thing to show you. It's a diagram. It's called the cross chart. We've been using it for years. And there's a point and I, I might, if I were to adapt this, move the conversion a little bit to the right to where at the point of conversion, we see our need and we see that God is holy and that we're sinful and that we cannot bridge the gap. And the cross bridges the gap, the sacrifice. He took the sin that was ours to be punished for and he bore that as the perfect sinless sacrifice. And so the cross, when we get saved, it looks big, but throughout all of our lives, it will grow to look bigger because what we see is as we look at the scriptures, as we look and see God's heart, he's holier, more perfect than we could have imagined. And we look at it and we scratch our heads and it's like, oh my goodness. And as we continue to go down this road of life, it's not that we necessarily become bigger sinners, but we just realize we're bigger sinners than we thought we were. When we read passages like James, to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. When we see the commands of Jesus, love them as I've loved you. And you're like, oh my goodness, 
You gave your life. I, I'm not doing that very well. And we think about all these things and we're like, man, I'm, I'm actually worse than I thought I was. And I think it's true in Paul's life at the beginning of his ministry. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. It's a humble deal. Amen, Paul, because you're a theological stud. You're following, you're giving your life. But by the end of his ministry, he's saying, I am a chief of sinners. Not because he was doing crazy stuff, but he knew the depths of his own heart. He knew what he was capable of. But the good news of the gospel is the cross doesn't stay the same size in our eye. It's actually, it's, it covers the gap the whole way. We try to fill it in with performance or pretending or whatever else. But the truth is, as we see this, the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger because God's provision is without end. God's love is without end. God's grace is without end. And as we see here today, no matter where you've been, what you've done, no matter what you're walking down towards and the call is to come back home, he's saying, look to the cross, look to the cross. Sin matters, I paid for it, but look to the cross, the height, the breadth, the width of my love for you. It's greater than anything you can imagine. But I pray as Paul prays here today that we will understand it more deeply and it will capture our hearts and that we could move forward and say, I don't have to hide. I don't have to take this path. I can seek God because he's seeking me. And God gave us this beautiful picture. Jesus on the night he's betrayed, he gives us this picture and he's reminding us that his body was broken for us. He's saying, took this to take care of your sin. But you know what? It's all done. To tell us, it is finished, paid in full. Jesus paid it all. Same way after supper, takes a cup, says the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. His blood has covered us and we are washed clean. Past, present, future. And that comes with an invitation. Follow me. Follow me, God says. If you're a Christian here, I invite you to come and with reflection, think about the massiveness of the cross. Think about the invitation if you're walking down a path to interrupt it, reach out for help and break off a piece of the bread, dip it into the juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits. And remember, Jesus paid it all. If you're not a Christian, the scriptures teach to not partake in this meal. And our invitation is different. It's to come and say, let's dialogue about this Jesus. Could he really love me? Did he really die? Whatever questions you have, is it historical evidence that Christ lived and died and raised from the dead? Yes, yeah. Let's look at it. But in all things, let's turn our direction on our king and let's seek his face. Let's pray together.